Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Co-author of the Meaning of Lift. The Meaning of Lift, one of the greatest yeah, Christmas books. Yeah, and the co-author with ten books with me, the QI books. Uh, and, mo- and more importantly, co-author with <laughs> ten books with you. Yeah, ten books. We actually had them piled in front of us because that was the prize for the quiz. We then did a quiz. And how did the qu- how was the quiz? The quiz was good. The quiz. I did Christmas. I did the deck the halls round, which was pretty, you know. Give us, give us a question. I'll give you one, I mean, it's a pathetic question, but it, it oh. amused me. How many people each year on average are injured by Christmas trees, Andy? Is it A, 100 people? Is it B, 1,000 people? Or is it C, 100,000 people? Injured. Injured by Christmas, Christmas trees. And, but by injury, that could mean poke fall. in the eye or fall on top of you. Or mostly, you know what it is, is people putting the lights up. So it must be 100,000. Dod- it's 100,000? No, it's 1,000. It's 1,000. Yeah, it slightly under, undermines you. I will ask you a question. Middle names based on place of conception. What What is the middle name of Rodney Buse's character Bob Ferris oh, in no. Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads? Bob C. Houses Ferris. Bob Scarborough Ferris. <laughs> and in the words of James Bolam in that episode, Scarborough! From the back of the church. Um, should we, should With we that, should we start? <laughs> Hello, ho, 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 (laughs) and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. We're gathered seasonally around the table in the luxurious and tinsel-bedecked offices of our sponsors Unbound, (laughs) the website which brings authors and readers together to make great books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. Uh, And I'm Andy Miller, Grinch, and author of (laughs) The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us around the table, we have two guests today. Uh, First of all, we have Laura Cumming author of A Face to the World, and backlisted favourite, The Vanishing Man, uh, which was published earlier this year to great acclaim <laughs> from us and, more importantly, other people too. <laughs> um, Much more important. It's a book about... Be- can you, could you say the name of the person the book is oh, about? Well, there's a whole chapter in the book about there the fact is. that nobody can possibly pronounce his name. I'm, I mangled it on the podcast. Please, would well, you say Well, I it? was in Madrid last week promoting this book with the Spaniards, and I asked 16 journalists how to pronounce it, and I had 14 different variations. Brilliant. So I can tell you it's either... Or Velasquez, or Velasquez, etc., etc., and um, you could p- take your pick, really. I we I, call uh, it's the old thing we call Paris, Paris, and not Paris. So let's all go with Velasquez. Velasquez, very good. Um, <laughs> well, we John and I have both read The Vanishing Man. We both absolutely love it. Um, uh, when is when is when will that be available for listeners to enjoy in paperback edition? It's coming out in three weeks' time. Perfect. With an afterword, which tells you what happened next. Oh, how exciting. Excellent. Well, Added value. Yeah. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, Laura. Spoiler alert. And, um, and we're also joined by, uh, joining us today, a very special guest, backlisted listener and competition winner, uh, <laughs> Hilary Murray-Hill, who is now, what are, you are, first of all, 
you are a friend of mine, but and and but more importantly, you are the CEO of Hachette Children's Publishing. Is that correct? I am the CEO of the Hachette Children's Group. Yes. And you are with us, breaking our infamous one guest only rule, because you recommended uh, our book today to me a couple of months ago, and. Am I right in saying it is your all-time favourite book? You're right in saying it's my all-time favourite book. And it was my all-time favourite book when I was eight and nothing has changed since then. Eight? Yes, which is when I first read it, yeah. So the book that we are going to be talking about in a minute, uh, that both Laura and uh, Hilary have brought to the table, as it were, is (laughs) Jane Gardens, A Long Way From Verona. I am going to show my hand immediately and say... I enjoyed this book, which I had never even heard of a couple of months ago, so much. It is a total pleasure to have a podcast to just come on and invite people to talk about it. Yeah. What do you think, John? Yeah, I'm, I've, unfortunately, I feel for the reasons of balance, I ought to say I wasn't that impressed by it, but I completely loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I, oh um, we have to take a breath. Well, I can't really see how anyone couldn't love this book. I mean, it's... Yeah. it's, it's Elan, you know, on every page, that energy that it's just, yeah. I mean, if a good a test of a good book is that I do now want to go and read everything that Jane Gardam has ever written. I've attempted to do that in the I, last I've, three weeks, as you know, know. and I've, let, I've, I've watched with interest from the side. <laughs> so, we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. So, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But first of all, John, do you want to go first or shall I go first? Why don't you go first? What, Andy, uh, have you been reading? I have been reading um, some Christmas stuff because we asked uh, listeners a couple of months ago to suggest things, stories or short novels that we might read over Christmas. Uh, So I've been diligently reading a few of those. I'm just going to mention a few of them now. I'm going to see if anyone around the table has read these, then let me know. Uh, So I'm currently reading The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper, the suggestion of Una McCormack, author Una McCormack. Brilliant book. Absolutely, one of my favourite favourite books. It's fantastic. Um, I put a little. I it's mentioned very, on Twitter it, that I was reading I'll it this morning when I talk about my stuff later. Yeah. But it's, there's a connection with which I hadn't really thought of. But Carrie Kenya suggested that I read "Christmas Is a Sad Season for the Poor" by John Cheever. <gasps> Have you read that? I haven't. But what a great title! It is unbelievably brilliant. We okay, could have done cool. the most depressing episode of Batlisted ever <laughs> if we just... Fo- which is saying something. If we focus just on that story. Well, Cheever is definitely out there, isn't he, as a possible at, some, at something. Maybe the journals, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that'll be in my Christmas stocking, do you think? Seriously, I read a story though. called... A brilliant story by Hart, called Hart the Herald by Magnus Mills, which okay. was recommended by both... Uh, Anthony Waller and Book Glutton. It's only 10 pages long. The mo- at Magnus Mills, so great. I'd love to do Magnus Mills on here. Such a brilliant mixture of weird, funny, and heartbreaking, all in <coughs> 10 pages. I can really recommend. That's called Heart the Herald. I read a story yesterday which was recommended by Andrew Corbin by Angus Wilson called Christmas Day at the Workhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Has anybody read that? I have read that, but I haven't read it for oh about my 20 goodness. years. You I went through a big Angus Wilson phase. It was weird. It was, he was oddly... Really published early 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I think we might have had something to do with it because yeah. Tim Waterstone got completely obsessed with him, and, and that is an amazing... Is moment. it very sardonic? Uh, it's very sardonic, <laughs> but also it's a story that appears... To, I read it, I ended up reading it three times because the layers of it were so interesting. It's, it it's appears to be... He worked at Bletchley Park. 
Yes. Which, and when he wrote the story, nobody knew, of course, that he... That, but it's clearly a story about what it was like to work at Bletchley Park. Yeah. Doesn't sound much fun. No. Seems very claustrophobic, very intense. All sort of class conflicts going on within the group of girls who are gathered there. So I, re- I can really, really recommend that. And, um, but we should put a call out if there's anyone who... I mean, I do think... And, and some of them are still Angus in Angus Wilson and Anglo-Saxon attitudes, but yeah, there yeah. are others that, are, that, are, uh, that are, I think are better. And uh, also, also Gagarin recommended I read What to Look for in Winter, published by Ladybird, 1959. Oh. Which is oh, a beautiful book. I remember book. that book. So, yeah. um, but actually the and book... And gives a great title to Candy McWilliam and her marvellous memoir. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yes, of Very wintry memoir. Um, but the, the, the short novel that I read, which was also recommended by Andrew Corbyn, which I'm really delighted to um, have read, is uh, called An Advent Calendar by Sheena Mackay, and by the time people get to hear this, you still have time to get hold of a copy of this book. It's only about 100 or so pages long, written 1971. Sort of bells or something to play uh, in the background. It's got, it, and it's like, um, it's, it's as the title suggests, it's a novel that fit, is broken into 25 days, uh, starts on December the 1st, ends on Christmas Day, in fact, unlike an advent calendar which ends on Christmas Eve. And um, I don't know how much people know about Sheila Mackay. I absolutely love Sheila Mackay. Um, she's a, she's a, I read her in the 80s uh, when her book Red Hill Rococo was recommended. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. very close to my heart because I was born in Red Hill because Sheila Mackay writes about the suburbs. And because... You uh, are a man of the suburbs. Red Hill, well, and proudly so. Yeah. And Red Hill Rococo was reviewed by Julie Burchill at the time, and this is what yes, she I wrote. I was going to say, Julie Birch is a massive fan. She wrote this. There is one amongst us who can write about blear and drear and perform some kind of magic on them that turns tipex to liquid gold. <laughs> this alchemist's name is Sheena Mackay, and she is probably the best writer in the world today. Sheena Mackay, savage sphinx of the suburbs, and simply the best woman writer since Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> 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 Good old Julie. So, Good old Julie. So, so I'd never read this uh, book, An Advent Calendar, and I'm just going to read you the opening, uh, just the opening few paragraphs, because it's so... She, only Sheena Mackay would write this in a Christmas novel. Here we go, chapter one. An ambulance racketing at four o'clock through fairy-lit Finchley made late shoppers jump back from the curb as it stopped outside the butcher's shop in North Pole Road. The crew pushed through a small crowd in the doorway to find a white-faced boy sitting on a chair nursing a huge hand wrapped in bloody swabbing cloths while two butchers crawled frantically through the sawdust. It's no use. It must have gone in the mincer, like I said, said one, straightening up. He chopped off his finger and we can't find it, he explained to the ambulance crew who were supporting the stricken boy to his feet. Mincer! Mincer! ran through the crowd like a flame. Get the mincer, said an ambulance man. Empty, replied the butcher mournfully. What do you mean empty? Every sex vital, you know. There was a customer here when it happened. Mick was serving him when the cleaver slipped, so I thought I'd better finish his order for him. I must have accidentally knocked his finger in with the meat. It could have happened to anyone. He seemed upset by the intrusion of alien meat and blood and sank onto the chair, vacated by Mark. You find that finger, said the ambulance man, jabbing his own menacingly, and get it round the Whittington casualty right away. The butcher's pate bubbled with panic. They left, and the butchers heard the siren shrieking all the way down the high road as they bent their tonsured heads once more into the sawdust. (laughs) 
And then the, um, the, the novel proceeds from that point um, about a man who believes he may or may not have eaten the digit in question with his tea and how he receives absolution by Christmas Day. So uh, I, I heartily recommend that to everybody. Andrew Corbin, thank you very, very much for making me read uh, a Sheen Mackay that I hadn't read before. John, what have you been reading? Um, <clears throat> I've been reading Christmas stories. I want, wanted to read a couple of Christmas ghost stories. So, and I, I didn't want to read M.R. James because that's sort of obvious. So I thought I'd read an E.F. Benson that I'd never read before. I have a <laughs> secret love of E.F. Benson. Yeah. So I read one really good one, which was called, um, which was called Beneath, Between the Lights, which is, I think, 1912. And it's just classic. I kind of have a soft spot for the... Everybody's playing hide-and-seek in a large country house <laughs> in huge Christmas jollity. And, um, and then they all settle down after the, you know, sort of panting and uh, having had a cup of tea, something nice. Uh, and one of the party starts to tell a story. And it's a pretty terrifying story, is that he remembers them all gathering last year in, in, uh, in, at the same house and that it was a warm Christmas um, because... She, in the book we're about to call it was called a green Christmas. Yeah. That warm Christmas. <laughs> right. And he, he he has this vision looking at a patch of dahlias that are still that he finds himself in this terrifying low kind of building with a sense of absolute terror. Uh, with a, a group of strange shapes around the fire, and they, they turn out to be sort of semi-human, and is, is completely spe- sends him do lally for several months afterwards. He he comes back to his senses. Anyway, without giving you the whole story, he goes up to Scotland, goes walking, shoots a stag, as you do in, in an E.F. Benson story, <laughs> loads up a pony. He's walking back, the mist descends, and his ghillie runs off into, you know, screaming into the night. He's left on his own. He finds himself sheltering and in, a, in a shelter. And, of course, where he finds himself is exactly the same as the vision he had on Christmas Eve. Oh. Um, it's kind of hokum, but it's quite... It's yeah, really, yeah, well, it's really, really well-written yeah. hokum. But I, one of the things, that, that, that the start of it, what I liked about it, I, got, I, I discovered I got a bit of a thing about snow, which is what links to uh, The Dark is Rising. And I suppose it's just, you know, there's some odd connection. I, I was forcibly translated to New Zealand as a child, and, you know, there was an absolutely no chance of having a white Christmas ever in New Zealand for, for obvious reasons. And I don't, I don't know that we had that many white Christmases when I was a kid, but there was some deep need for them and the idea of Christmas and snow and frigidity and coldness, which I still love. And so I was, I've been looking for sort of snowy stories, and the E.F. Benson's great because they're all snuggled in, playing hide-and-seek in a snowy house, and they're hearing the, the snow sort yeah. of patter against the window panes. You know, another uh, listener recommended a book which you might have read. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry if the person is listening to this. I didn't write your name down, and I should have done. Um, called The Rack by... Oh, and it's, it's, he said, the, 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 the person in question said it great pains to me to say, it isn't Christmassy at all, but it's about, it's set in a sanatorium great. surrounded by snow. I have to it's say. It's autobiographical, I believe, and is the most harrowing but brilliant account of, I think, mental illness, I believe, in, and isolation, which obviously is as a Grinch. I, is I have to say, what, what this makes me feel is that this actually might be a really rather good anthology of interesting snowy cold crisp yeah I rejoice is the dead well that was the other I, I wasn't even I mean absolutely such the, the, great, the greatest story of all ever yeah, yeah. I agree 
Um, and that, the dead was recommended but the reason by it, the reason Richard it links, King. The I reason like it links to one of what the, the, the opening chapters of The Dark is Rising is all about the snow not yeah, stopping. That's right. And it's, yeah. it's in the small but perfectly formed genre of snow writing. <laughs> Barry Lopez, here we come. Orhan uh, Pamuk's Snow. Yeah. God, yeah. 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 But I mean, it, the, the start to that book is is a brilliant, is, and it's just there is something, and, it, and that's what I, I that sense that there is something, the snow as some sort of objective correlative of some inner state is quite an interesting one. It's quite also, interesting. I was sorry, just going to say about there's a, the bit in the middle. It's a long time since I've read it, but the bit in the middle of the secret history when he's up on the oh, roof. Yes. Do you remember? Yes, and the snow course. is a sort of metaphor for his moral state and moral Brilliant. isolation and coldness. And that's, that's one of the snowy things that I think of when I think about absolutely brilliant snowy writing. And you can have a Velasquez of snow on the cover because there is one. Yes. Right, we're, we're making, we're, we're, we're making a book on air, ladies and gentlemen. I must make a comment. We can't talk about books about snow <laughs> if we don't mention <laughs> Dan Rose's fantastic uh, oh, When yeah. the Professor Got Stuck in the Snow. Yeah. Um, uh, about it's a, a, it's a comic novel about a, a humorless <coughs> atheist professor, professor of, of science of, of science whose name we we, we perhaps dare won't we, we dare not mention for legal reasons. But if you've not read this book, it is extremely funny. Um, I think it was published a couple of years ago, wasn't it? In paperback. I like this snow the snow genre. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we've already well, we can all go home. Well, there is there is crucially. Brilliant segue here. Cru the crucial turning point in the book, you have to say, has a bit of a snow theme. Time now for an advert. It does indeed. The, so the we're going to the we house party. Oh yes, the house party. So we're going to move on to uh, a long way from Verona now by Jane Gardam. This was Jane Gardam's first novel. We should. I'm going to ask um, Laura that, a question. Can possibly in a be true. Can it possibly be true that this was her first novel? Yes, and it, it I is think her she, first novel. And she famously says in every interview, doesn't she, that she didn't write a thing until the final child had actually got posted through the letterbox to school and she could sit down, having raised them all, and get on with it. So she is, I think, was she not 39? She, she she, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and somebody I noticed the other day was saying about it, this incredible masterpiece. She's writing about it in the 60s, at the late 60s, so, you know, it's the summer of love going on while she's sitting there, finally liberated to get on with work, which I think is a sort of Famously, great she, moment of she feminist. Sa she says that the, the day her youngest child went to school, she dropped him off, turned round, came home, went upstairs and started writing. And never stopped. And never stopped. Yeah. I mean, she's written 25 novels, 25 books. Not 25 novels, 25 books, that's right. Laura, we, we always ask, this is the first question we ask, but I, I'm... I sort of know the answer to this, but people listening won't do. When did you first encounter A Long Way From Verona? I was older than Hilary, and I'm staggered at your precocity that you could have read this when you were eight, uh, given that so much <laughs> of it is about the history of adult English literature, so I take my hat off to you. I was, I think, uh, 12. I've been looking at my old edition and I think looking at the dog ear and the handwriting, I think I'm 12. And the character in the book is 13. But the book opens when she's nine, which is, of course, juvenile beyond belief to a 13-year-old. Mm. And um, certainly when I was reading it, I thought of her as very grown-up indeed. Um, so I think I must have been more or less 
at that moment. And I got it because in the days when I was growing up in the 70s in Edinburgh, there were four, bless them, independent bookshops. And at Christmas, the largest of them, Thins, Great if shop. anybody remembers that yes, wonderful shop, shop, used to send around a pamphlet um, with uh, all their kind of promoted titles and so on. And a long way from Verona has on the cover of it, as anybody listening who has read this book will know, an absolutely terrific piece of drawing um, showing the girl herself in her, you know, her awful blue. Um, it's by Christina Terska, this magnificent cover. Classic and, uh, cover. Classic cover. And she's, she's wearing her blue school tunic and there's barbed wire because it's wartime and you know, they're going to be, an air raid will take place during the course of the book uh, and so on during which a lot will happen to her. But anyway, this fantastic drawing um, took my eye and I think I was at the point, this is one reason why this book is so important to me, I think I was at the point in my life where um, images meant more to me than words did. I suppose I've swung possibly the other way as I got older, but, and I studied English literature, not art, but um, I certainly saw this cover and I thought, oh, a staggeringly beautiful blue. It's great, I love that, it looks wonderful. And it said next to it that the um, main reviewer of the Scotsman, who was a person of a sort of porky humour, but rather generally solemn, had written a sort of great um, thundering thing saying, you know, what a tremendous book this was when it came out from Hamish Hamilton in hardback. So Sins had got a huge quote, longer than the blurb for the book, <laughs> um, saying, you know, you must buy this. And I had, because I was very thrifty about my book tokens from my July birthday, I had kept my book token, because I always did, until Sins told me what's really going to be. And I, I remember going to buy the book in the shop at Christmas at this time of the year, more or less, yeah. um, and coming home with it and just being completely, well, I think if we all agree that books alter your life, either gradually, incrementally, or dramatically, this one did for me, because the character in it is, to me, as heroic uh, as any figure of, you know, for girls my age, and any, any figure in Jane Austen, she's far more impressive and interesting and exciting and odd and uh, very, very... Um, independent-minded, which is what I love about it. I really. would like to mention, if I may, uh, before we come back to the book, I would like to mention my auntie Joycey, who is no longer with us, but she used to live in Broughty Ferry in um, uh, Dundee, and uh, near Dundee. And um, I saw a poll uh, when I was writing my last book that was published in a newspaper that it said, and this is the sort of thing that newspapers, as you know, will run <laughs> polls on, what was the most disappointing Christmas present of the 1970s? And <laughs> readers had, had, or, or subscribers had, had nominated book tokens as the most disappointing oh. present, oh. right? Rubbish. Well, those people are idiots. And, um, my and we're all here to prove it. My <laughs> Auntie Joycey used to send me a book token from down from Broughty Ferry every Christmas and That's every nice. birthday. And I used to go and spend it at... Um, W.H. Smith in the Whitgift Centre in Croydon. And it was the best present, usually, that I ever got. And, you know, it's funny, reading this book, the reason why I mention all that, apart from just to be cross that people thought book tokens were a disappointing present, to read a book which treats a bookish child heroically is wonderful, I thought. One of the reasons I love this book so much, I'm gonna, we're going to read bits, I'm sure, but there's a, there's a couple of descriptions of reading yeah. which are 
with, as childhood reading, which are as good as anything I've ever read yeah. about the experience that you get from a book as a I'd child. I'd just like to say, um, just in case Laura thinks that I was a child genius, or I any of your, your, your listeners yes, might think that I was a child genius, I'd like to say that I was not a child genius. <laughs> but I did, um, I did really, really love the sound of the story, even though I didn't understand chunks of it. And chunks of the plot eluded me until I was about 37, I think. <laughs> but the, um, but I, I was lucky because my mother read this book immediately after I'd read it, and she absolutely loved it and I think about it now it, it really spoke to her because she grew up you know she was a child during the war yeah. and she's about the same age as Jane Garden now and I think that quite a lot of my pleasure in it came from her explaining parts of it to me and quoting bits of it back to me and saying did you enjoy this part when and so I think that started my rereading and I think I have pretty much reread it every single year since I'm, then. I'm just going to read uh, the, the blurb yeah. for the benefit of everybody, so they know what we're talking about. Okay. And this is the blurb for the Puffin edition. Okay, so this is the blurb for the Puffin edition. I'm going to read the back and then the inside blurb, because the back blurb is very short. You'll, you'll see why I, I, I'm going to read this. Here we go. Jessica Vi yearns to become a writer, but wartime, a curate's cramped and chaotic household, and a strict down-to-earth school are a comically disheartening setting. <laughs> That's first of all I mean, right? Comically disheartening. That I mean, right? And then we go. And then we have... This is a story set during the last war, and I assume this was written, this would have been written by Kay Webb, the legendary Puffin editor-in-chief. This is a story set during the last war. It is about Jessica Vi fighting her own private battle to grow up in her own way, to live her own life in the confining world of a girl's day school, and in the bleak little house her family had come to live in when her father decided to become a curate instead of a comfortably off schoolmaster. Sensitive, emotional, and devastatingly truthful, Jessica steered her way past reef after reef, from a chance meeting with a maniac in some forbidden woods to a foul house party for children in a grand snobbish household. It is a funny, gritty, unsentimental book, and Jessica is one of the most lively and attractive heroines to have appeared in the pages of a puffin. Highly recommended for girls and perceptive boys <laughs> of, of 11 and over. I want to adopt the phrase, highly recommended for girls and perceptive boys of 11 and over for this podcast, John. What do you think? I think that's brilliant. <laughs> it's, so, it's, so, it's so from the first page, though. That's, what, that's why I, I, the idea of a first novel, I mean, the confidence, the style is so... I mean, it's very the rare that you get a book. It's a famous piece of absolutely writing, it, it, isn't it, Hilary? Yeah. Yeah. You get it. Read, read us the opening. Read, yeah. read us. Yeah, have you got a the famous opening? The famous opening. And anybody who's about to listen to this will get a proper shock when Hilary tells you what the event was, because it's not what you think no. at all. I ought to tell you at the beginning that I am not quite normal, having had a violent experience at the age of nine. I will make this clear at once because I have noticed that if things seep out slowly through a book, the reader is apt to feel let down or tricked in some way when he eventually gets the point. <laughs> I mean, that the thing is, that that's so... Well, oh, I get goosebumps she, she, she mentions that. Copperfield, you know, in the book. She mentions a lot of books in the book. But it, is, it has that level to me of, uh, you know, that's, a, that's a, the opening paragraph of a book that you'll never forget, you know, like... like um, Ford Maddox Ford's Good Soldier. I mean, yes. all those great. Yes. You think, my God, that is the, you know, a violent experience. So, <laughs> Jessica and her classmates have 
been are to be addressed by a, a quote-unquote famous writer. <laughs> the most brilliant famous writer. Appearance <laughs> right. in a school ever. His name is Arnold Hanger. <laughs> <laughs> like many, like Gardam, I now realise has a Dickens-like ability for names. Brilliant. Right. Anyway, Arnold Hanger. So here he's in. They're in the classroom. Uh, everyone clapped like mad and biffed everyone else's knee and pushed at everyone else's elbow and snuffled, though keeping straight faces because, of course, nobody had ever heard of the man before, except, I suppose, the headmistress. <laughs> Arnold Hanger got up with a deep sigh and, <laughs> and looked That's all round so us. And then his face broke into a great lovely smile all over and he began to talk. I'm abridging as I go, incidentally. And he was absolutely marvellous. Even the top form... The really ghastly ones who just sat about <laughs> yawning all day and were going to do nothing when they left school but sit about yawning all day. It was a posh sort of school. Even they sat up and listened. He had a lovely voice and he had brought a lot of books with him with bits of paper stuck in to mark the place. And he kept picking up first one book and then another and reading bits out. Long, long bits and sometimes very short bits. Poetry and all sorts. Well, I was only nine and I wasn't really far off fairy tales. So, so she goes on and then uh, the head thanked him, beam, 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 and he suddenly looked sad and tired again and went padding off after her to the door with his head down while we clapped and clapped. He stood in the door with his back to us for a moment and then he turned round and stared at us and suddenly he put up his hand and we were quiet. Thank you, he said. I'm glad you enjoyed it. If there is anyone here this afternoon whom I have convinced the books are meant to be enjoyed that English is nothing to do with duty, that it has nothing to do with school, with exercises and homeworks and ticks and crosses, then I am a happy man. He turned away, but then he turned back again, and he suddenly simply shouted, he bellowed, to hell with school, he cried, to hell with school. English is what matters. English is life. The head grabbed him and led him off to her sitting room for tea, not looking too thrilled, and we were let out and I went flying home. I mean, she go, and she goes flying home to get her writing. Yes. To show this man who's changed her life. Who I suppose, I mean, I guess he's a kind of Arnold Bennett. Is he, she sort of half likes him and half doesn't like him. <laughs> well, he appears. And he, appear, he Bennett appears, appear, later, appears later in the book. Yes, <laughs> I, I really related to that much more strongly after Alan Brownjohn came to <laughs> ask <laughs> and gave a talk. And I think I must have been in about the fifth form. And I had, that was the first time I'd ever really considered that, you, that people who wrote books actually got paid for it and people published them and how all that came together. But he was sort of, I mean... Admirable in one way, but a bit Arnold Hangrish in another. Hilary, was that you were saying, you were telling me that that is based on? Yes, a, a similar experience that Jane Gardam had, but much later on when she was already at university. And she mentions this in in the introduction to her um, anthology of short stories. Would you like me to? Yeah. What does she say? Say about that. Um, she was she was taken to. Um, in, in surprising circumstances, to a lecture by L.A.G. Strong, a well-known critic then, she says, a critic um, who wrote about the, uh, on the short story. Um, she, she'd read his book at school, and he, she agreed with much of what he said. And on the way back to London after this lecture, she followed L.A.G. Strong. She says, I climbed into the same carriage. I sat down beside him. He looked dejected and tired with deep lines between his nose and his sweet mouth. I fell in love. I began to talk. Um, she goes on to say... Um, 
that he says to her, I believe you write. And I said, yes, send me something. Looking weary, he courteously passed me a card. So she went back to college and sent him a short story, and she didn't hear anything for some time. Then a letter typed in royal blue ink, Jane, you are a writer beyond all possible doubt. Oh, which, is which, the, is, which is obviously the so root of Now, we have, now this is very good time. We have a clip of Jane Gardham talking at the Edinburgh International Book Festival in 2013. She was being interviewed by Claire Armistead, and they've just gone over to audience questions. And what you're going to hear is the first audience question. Here we go. That's such a fabulous story about a young girl growing up uh, during the war and who just knows she wants to be a writer. Um, I have to ask, is it autobiographical? It is a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So you are are Jessica? Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what does Jessica do that that, uh, might be identifiable as you? Jane. Me? Yes. Well. Oh, she's hopeless. <laughs> I mean, at school, she's hopeless. She doesn't know where she is, what she's doing. She's very young for her age, I think. Um, it's wartime, too, and she's, uh, you know, we were all launched into a different kind of thing straight away. Um, but she's, she holds firm to the fact that she wants to write, and this is so usual in someone who's going to be a writer that we just never lose it and don't it's a very strange thing I don't know what it's all about I don't I think a lot of writers would say we don't know who was it uh, Iris Murdoch says we don't know what we're doing until it's finished <laughs> really um, no that that um, that book was sort of a kind of love song to my home I think. So yes, so that was Jane Gardham speaking at the uh, Edinburgh uh, Book Festival. What do you think about that? It's quite interesting. I found that absolutely fascinating because of course when she says, um, oh in her beautiful voice she's such a beautiful woman and she has a beautiful voice and she's a great writer God. Um, when she says um, oh you know she's absolutely hopeless of course you see I'm staggered by this remark because to me Jessica Vise the Absolute opposite of hopeless. Um, She's the only brave child in the school. She's the only person who stands up to absolutely everybody, adults, children, teachers, friends, the whole lot. Um, It's a great, and again, I think this is a very beloved scene for people who adore this book, um, a great scene where she's sent by her... um, you know, deli- her, her middle-class intellectual parents who've, who are living on, you know, nothing and it's all rations and the house is unheated and, the, you know, the mother has a marvellous brain that's being unused, which is a great portrait in the book. I particularly relate to that now that I am much, much older and a mother myself. Um, and the father's constantly churning out these essays for the new statesman that she doesn't even know he's writing and she doesn't care, you know, and so on. And at some point, a, a fat envelope arrives with a kind of bossed, um, you know, invitation to go to a country house party which fills her with disgust but she goes you see I'd have got out of it somehow in my cowardly way but she goes this character goes and um, she has nothing to wear because of all the aforementioned the only thing she's got is a Vianna yeah. dress which is so tight and short that you know the armholes are right up under you know the, <laughs> the waist under her armholes and, and you know she's going to have to wear this trouble thing and her mother says you know oh and you could wear your pumps and she recoils in horror at the very use of the word pumps you know and she's got to go to this thing so she makes her mind up to go to it and when she gets there there is a vast um, house filled with rah-rah children you know who are all all blonde mm. and very hairy <laughs> and so on and, uh, and she's sort of sent to be amongst them and they all hate her 
which of course makes you love her even more. Um, and there comes the moment when dresses are going to have to be put on and they're all going to have to, you know, it's going to be sort of schemes of entertainment are occurring and everybody's got to go downstairs and, you know, dance and so on. Old ladies with old ladies. <laughs> it's very funny. And she has brought with her fancy dress costume from home. And instead of putting on the rotten viola, she braves it and sticks on, you know, last Christmas's... <laughs> nativity outfit yeah. and some scarlet tights and they all come in and they all say oh my dear but how oh dear you, you, you seem to have not understood the invitation <laughs> it, 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 it's not fancy what are we going to do and a lot of um, uh, very patronising things are said to her about this and but she sticks with it and she will not put on the rotten viola and what a brave child you know mm, you think she could have she, Churchill is often mentioned in this book and I think she's rather Churchillian <laughs> in, in yeah. some ways um, w w wonderful I, I love the way as well that the book is a um, I mean I, this tends to be a cliche for me for things that I like but actually, what's so interesting about the book is it's a book about writing books. Yeah. That she <coughs> defines herself, just as Jane Gardam did in that clip, in fact, as someone who must be a writer, who cannot help but be a writer. But also, the book that you're reading, when you read A Long Way From Verona, you're reading Jessica's attempt to write a book. It's her first attempt to write a book. And, yeah. she, and she, she's got these wonderful... So first of all, it's about reading. It has all this stuff about reading. But it's also about writing. It has all these wonderful little authorial asides. Uh, and or, 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 or winks to the reader saying this is the sort of thing you might enjoy here mm -hmm. and then uh, as the book goes on and, she, and you the sense that she's getting more confidence mm -hmm. she starts making stuff up that she wasn't present at and she tells you I wasn't here for this but I'm pre pretty sure it went something like this I, that struck me as so and clever a, and a great ingenious gift that she gives her that God gives the child which is I, I always knew what everybody else was thinking mm -hmm. and therefore oh, I'm now yes. able to tell you and off she goes into these interior monologues I mean, for all the other characters the funniest thing about that though is that her intense discomfort when she meets somebody else who can do the same thing because the awful mother at the children's house party she realises is reading her thoughts and yes. it, it makes them so it's very very difficult for them to actually be together in the same room you know, that really reminds me now as you say that um that really, it really reminds me of another book that I loved as a child, which I don't know if any of you have read it, called The 18th Emergency by Betsy Byers, uh, which is about a, a, a child who lives, a little boy who lives in New York, who um, is quite underconfident and it, it, there's no dad around in their family and he has to look after an elderly man who's had a stroke when he's not at school. And he's, he's as the book starts, he has um, offended the school bully, Marv Hammerman. And the story of the book is him waiting to be hit by Marv Hammerman. <laughs> it's how do you deal with a bad thing that's going to happen yeah. to you? In a, and it captures the sort of quirkiness and, and Jessica in this book is very driven emotionally and I thought Jane God was so brilliant at finding those swings of mood that yeah. children have which adults perhaps don't I have access to reading it for the first time but you get that sense of how her language changes and darkens and deepens over the course of the book but I was just saying about the mother the relationship with the mother I particularly liked 
I grew up in a, in, you know, my dad was a, was a vicar and became one after being a school teacher. My mother was a school teacher. And then my mother was forced to become a vicar's wife, which she absolutely loathed. But there was, so there's lots of details in this book, which I really love. But the, the relationship with the mother, between Jessica and her mother, I think is, is really remarkable. This great paragraph here where she says, she's got a bit red in the face now and rather wild. This is the mother slamming and crashing about and her clothes are so vile. It does no good telling her, and to tell you the truth, I try not to think about what she looks like with her hair all frizzed all over her head and her red hands. When she gets angry, she seems to grow knobs all over her face. I just never tell her about things at school, like speech day, as a matter of fact. I just say, she's much too busy to come. She never asks. There just might never be a speech day for all she cares. When I'm at school, I might just as well be dead for all the interest she takes. And I hope she finds this book and reads what I said. <laughs> that, that, that petulance, but that also that kind of ability just to turn to the reader. And, to, and then, you know, you're saying yeah. that she is, that, that's the weird thing. You, she is, this, the book is the book that she's writing. I, it's, it's, it's just Go great. On, I've got this quote from Joan Garland, which seems appropriate. Um, this is a short one. Uh, where she, she says that the most important thing for her when she's writing a novel is character, and that she, uh, towards the end of her career, as she sees it, even though she's still with us and she's still writing, she, dis she said, I did she this brilliant thing where she discovered, I discovered that everybody is as interesting as everybody else if you tell their story correctly. And she says here, I discovered that writing was very nice indeed when I was very young, and I never changed. I don't think my style has changed very much at all, though I hope what I say is a bit more interesting. <laughs> it's about getting to know a character and loving them. And actually, I, I, the others of her books that I've read in the last few weeks, like Bilgewater, uh, could almost be a sequel to A Long Way From Verona, but certainly Old Filth, the novel Old Filth, is a novel, again, a almost Dickensian in its capacity to juggle 30 different characters wildly different from one another all of whom you feel the author will spend m more time with because she loves them so much she's just genius at, at, i mean th this early on in the book um sissy cumberpatch who is usually the color of mashed potatoes it's just i mean that's all you need to know about a character had gone quite pink she is a very very small girl and as i've said before she hardly ever speaks if you had to think of one word to describe her, you would say, watchful. <laughs> She's funny. She was evacuated from London or somewhere to an arts farm near Kirk Hinton Beck because of the air raids with a terribly long journey to school on about 17 different buses. She looked terribly tired half the time. You could tell what a stupid sort of family she must have had to send her to a place like Teesside to get away from the air raids. We're getting air raids just about every night. <laughs> so I just love that it's, it's that sort of chatty, slightly imperious kind of tone, but... It, Sissy Cumberpatch is brilliant. Yeah. In a couple of just a couple of sentences, yes, you've got a character. Yes, yes. I've got a few quotes. I can't stand people who play the piano all the time. They have mean little mouths. We <laughs> see that instantly. It was a terrible moment. We put our heads in our cups. The bell was like a metal muffin. He had a white, freckly face, like porridge. Yeah. And the book is filled again Brilliant. to do with images. She can create an uh, image in just uh, half that? a line every time. Uh, and every page and every paragraph is filled uh, with them. And, how, and, and Laura, uh, for obvious reasons, there is a key plot point in this book <laughs> about a picture, a painting. Um, how did you feel about that when you read it again recently? Well, in fact, I would like to just read this. 
This is not the painting you were talking about, but this is a painting. Now, anybody listening to this, this is what is this painting? Two women coming along, some sort of Africans. They were very steady and still against dark green trees. You could tell it was a man who was painting them. You can tell because they have nothing on above the waist. <laughs> so this is a Gauguin absolutely brilliantly described and of course it's a marvellous moment in the book because the character Jessica Vi has gone to the flat of the elderly um, ancien regime um, English teacher who is kind of retired but still present in the school in some way and who will tell you all the great things about literature in the book that you really need to know like you know Keats cheers himself up when he's really depressed, <laughs> gets a clean shirt. Emily Bronte, she never got down. She just got on with her work. She hold with Chatterton, did didn't she? with Chatterton. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right, yeah. And the values about literature in the book are, yeah. I think, marvellous. Yeah. She goes Fantastic. from thinking uh, yeah. so right Romeo and Juliet. Mm. So right about closer in the heart of the book. Got, it's I've a running gag. I just got this little bit. I so hope you were going to mention this. There is a brilliant section where Jessica describes reading a series of books in a library. And she says, uh, uh, in this, in the, and she reads them from A to Z. She said, in this way, I read, I read most of Jane Austen in three weeks. Even though there are certain things I very much dislike in her books, I won't go into them now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you want to become one of the English classics, it's a good idea to be up in the top half of the alphabet. There are a tremendous lot of A's and B's and D's, and down to about H. Then there's hardly anything at all <laughs> until you get to all the Richardson Scott Thackeray lot. <laughs> it's, ra it's rather depressing, really, and you don't feel you're making much progress when after a month you're just past the Brontes and when you see how many Dickenses are coming. <laughs> but I must say I love the first two or three I weeks. Why you like this <laughs> then I decided I'd skip about a bit and read one of the E's, a very strange-looking man called George Eliot <laughs> with ringlets and watery eyes. It was called Silas Marley and it was marvellous. And then I decided to read an H and chose Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. I hope I never read another book so utterly terrible as this. It is a marvellous book, and I didn't skip any of it, and I read on and on and on. But all the time I was thinking of Thomas Hardy, of the terrible sorrows and sadness of him. It seemed terrible to me that anyone who knew that he was a writer beyond all possible doubt should have not one glimmer not the faintest trace of happiness in him. There was one thing that he said that beat in my head over and over and over again. It was at the point where poor Jude just misses meeting someone who might have changed yeah. the whole terrible pattern of his life. If he had, who knows, says Hardy, then it all might have yet been well. Then he adds, but this did not happen, this good fortune, capital letters, yeah. because it never, never does. Which is the exact uh, moral of her book, this book, if, if of the many things you could say, it has a huge um, ideas in it, and one of them is that that's a load of old rubbish because yeah. Arnold Hanger, who turns up, is the is the parallel to that. Yeah, he? Her, yeah, yeah. her life is turned around by um, the equivalent of an Alan Brownlow mm. figure. Um, I I would also, if I may, like to to read a little bit of the book, um, and I would like to do this because this has a <laughs> terribly uh, upsetting memory in my own. Um, my own life, which is that after reading, after reading this book, as I think I was about 12, I go on holiday to Mull with my parents. And on the way between the mainland and Mull, we were in, this is the days obviously before magnificent kind of hovercrafts and all the rest of it, and we were in some kind of rowing boat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as we go, and I am not lying, so you'll see where this is going, 
the boat, uh, a storm blew up uh, between the, the island and the mainland, and we really were nearly all drowned. And we were, you know, quite people on the boat were injured. Somebody fell over, um, and the the captain of the boat, or the man rowing, I don't know, the team rowing, began to sing hymns because they were so frightened. End of the summer holidays. I write my essay, the classic. What did you do in your summer holidays? And my teacher, Miss Ireland, if you're listening now, Miss Ireland, <laughs> um, gave me, she gave, I mean, she did exactly, but exactly word for word, what happens here in the book, which is another reason I love this book so much. She began to give the books back one by one, sometimes stabbing with her pencil here and there as she pointed something out. The pile grew smaller until there was only one book left. And now, Jessica, will you come here, please? What is the meaning of this? I lifted one of my feet a little way from the floor, and at the same time I wondered why people do stand on one leg at moments like this. Horses lift a foot up when they're ready to kick. Dogs do it when they're ready to run. I wasn't thinking of doing either, but still I raised my leg. And then I began to smile because I didn't know what to say and my eyes had gone hot. The title of this essay, Jessica, was The Best Day of the Summer Holidays, wasn't it? Yes, Miss Dobbs. Then may I ask, Jessica, why you felt you had to write 47 pages? <laughs> well, I just wanted to. But you see, it wasn't on the subject, was it, in the first place? It was about something that happened before the holidays started, the day you broke up, in fact. Not in the holidays at all. And in the second place, it was pointless and silly all about some woman in a tea shop. Some woman you had obviously made up. Mm. Now, I have no objection to you using your imagination, inventing characters. That is, after all, what writers sometimes do. <laughs> but you must not try to pass people off as real who never existed when you were asked for facts, 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 Jessica. It isn't even as if you were telling a story. It was an essay I asked for. I'm afraid what you gave me is a lie. I didn't say a thing. And so it goes on, but the great moment in the book, the redemptive moment for all of us, and I'm now talking directly to you, Miss Ireland, is this moment. She says, if you've ever written anything you thought was any good, you must throw it away, you know, you'll feel terribly ashamed of it afterwards, what rubbish. Um, do see, dear. <laughs> I could feel that she was looking more closely at the top of my head, and there was a sort of kindness beginning to be in the air. It must have taken you such a long time, dear. I don't expect you to spend so much of your weekend. And after all, you have very little time when it comes to studying for the exams. It must quite have spoiled your Saturday. Capital letters again. I adored it! <laughs> <laughs> Up came my face. I adored it, you stupid cuckoo. I picked up the cloister and the hearth from her desk. And if mine's long, what about this? It's an awful long book and it's dead boring, and he was jolly pleased with himself, if anyone was. He's no good at all. All that romantic tosh. Be quiet, Jessica. And so it goes on, and she eventually she just shouts, you are a fool. And oh, so wonderful. it's marvellous moment where the, it's a counter to the, the hanger moment at the beginning of the book, where she's being told she can't write, mustn't write, etc. And my Miss Ireland, are you listening? Miss Ireland, I remember at the end of my term report, wrote, she will go nowhere. Oh. On my report. Good. 
Excellent. Every, so, everyone's so I've gone different. nowhere, Miss Ireland. Here I am in London. <laughs> <laughs> but this um, issue of what is the truth and what is a lie and how you measure mm. uh, what reality is and how you measure the imagination um, is very much the theme of and it's, this it's book. It's worth saying that the genius of the book is that you've been with the girls, with You've, you've, you've witnessed the thing that, that she's written about. So you, you, you're kind of in that process of what a writer does to turn... So, ah, it's just, I, I it's also, such, a, it's you such an the, admirable... The issue about the, what, the reality of what it is. I don't, I don't know whether you found this, John, but I was really struck by... There are two or three scenes in here that we haven't really talked about. There's a scene um, with a, a, um, a maniac, which I don't want to say too much about, and there's a scene in an air raid that I don't want to say too much about, which I mean, incredibly um, reminded me very strongly of Barbara Cummings, who we did very much uh, so. ve- we did on this podcast about in six fact, months ago. In fact, weirdly, the two books, the, the Barbara Cummings uh, book we did, the Vet's Daughter, the Vet's Daughter, and the and Lolly Willows, they were both. Yes, I that's felt right. They were yeah. strong, just in terms of really, really original. I mean, I, I was thinking about, I was thinking about the, the, the I was thinking about weirdly Portrait of the Artist. Yeah, uh, and, and, and Stephen Dedalus and, and that, and how internalised. What's brilliant about that scene is where you know the famous Pandy scene where he Stephen gets hit by the teacher, and it, but it, it, which it, I mean, it's brilliantly done. But you sort of want you want kids to say, "Oh, for God's sake, you stupid! Can't you see that, that, that I enjoy yeah, doing yeah, it?" Yeah. And anyway, that's rubbish. You're, what you're teaching, the defiance in the book, and the and the kind of the spirit, mm-hmm. and the and as as you say, she. She, she gives it out to everybody. She gives it out to her parents. She gives it out to the teachers. But then the subtle, the subtle moments, that scene with the maniac, as, as he's called, is so good. But that it comes back in a wonderful moment when she's thinking about, I think she's thinking about the boy and she, about being attractive. And she remembers, she remembers him and she also remembers, the, I, think, I think it's the bus inspector who looks at her in a certain way. Yeah. And that's... Just in again, one sentence, burgeoning sense of her own sexuality, but done, also done with such a lightness of touch, and, and but also what's so brilliant about this book in terms of of uh, is the more we talk about it, the more ambitious I think this book is actually, and and one of the things that it does brilliantly is try to recreate for you the creative process, both in terms of the writing of the book, as I was talking about, but actually the incident with the maniac becomes the basis of a poem. Yeah. It's one of the narratives that threads through the whole book that very slowly you see Life how the writer art. yeah how the writer yeah. takes what they're given and finds through processes they don't necessarily understand what, what, uh, how I, to articulate I it. Hillary, what, what was it doing on a children's list? Well, really? I mean, that's a question, obviously, especially since I've worked in children's publishing, which is only about half my career. I started in adult. Um, that's, that I've thought of a lot, but having read a lot more now that was published around that time for comparison. It doesn't surprise me perhaps quite so much it's as now it absolutely... Well, I, I mean, yeah. I can't imagine a context in which this would be published the, the children just, now. Just for, just for Level. clarification, this was published as a children's book in 1971, but then moved across to the adult list yeah, in the, the mid to late 70s. And it's published it now as an adult it book. It was at the yeah. end of the golden age, I mean. Yes. Well, I mean, Alan Garner. Alan Garner. Yeah. Yeah, was, there was there was Leon Garfield. There was. I mean, it was the, the 
uh, and Hamish Hamilton was one of the one of the great. But if you want a lower brow comparison, I've recently made a bit of a study of Bunty and Diana annuals. In that <laughs> period. Um, and I can tell you that I, I think that the complexity of short stories, even in the Bunty annual from about 1973, oh, is, is is a lot more than anything that would comparable that would be published now for girls of the same age. So I think I mean I, I do think just the complexity of text has it has changed. Fundamentally. It is. We, we will put some photos up at the but, first um, edition. Yeah. We've, there's been certain books we've done this year uh, that seem to me, yeah. when I've read them, I can't believe that they aren't better known. Mm. But this is perhaps the apex of that. I, I read this and thought, well, this is a classic. Mm. This is transparently a classic. Why is it? Is it perhaps because Jane Gardam has been so consistently excellent and prolific that it's become subsumed into her body of work. I don't know. Uh, I, I feel a great privilege not only to have found this book, but also to be given the opportunity to discover another amazing writer who's written 25 books. What a treat. The thought, the thought that there is... And we haven't even talked about her short stories. Short stories are masterly. I, think. I mean, we always talk about short stories <laughs> on Backlisted, but yeah, the ones I've read are... Uh, completely brilliant. She w she's won awards for, for her volumes of short stories there's, as well. There's, there's a great quote from DJ Taylor, which I love, which is that if you're too hip for Jane Garden, you're too hip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there is that about her. You know, that I, I honestly think you could put this into the hands of, of anybody. And I, if, you, if you have any interest in reading fiction, I can't imagine who... You, you know, within a few pages that you wouldn't be absolutely hooked and wanting to... Laura, did you say you read it with your... My da daughters, my twin daughters, yes. Um, and they were about... I guess they were about nine or ten <coughs> when I was reading. And I, I did I, I did skip parts of it because I thought, oh, Lord, you know, the maniac, anyone listening will have worked out that the maniac, given what John had said earlier, yeah. th th there is an un a very dark undertone there. Um, and so I, I missed all this out because I thought, oh, you know, this will be, perhaps I shouldn't read this part, you know. And of course, then they, as soon as I, you know, stopped reading it aloud, they picked it up and read it themselves. Um, the thing that they were very struck by was, of course, Christian, who we haven't mentioned, who is the boy, um, who's wonderfully called Christian. She's not really, a, she's not Dickensian in so far, she doesn't generally go in for allegorical names and so on, but Christian is a real kind of <laughs> joke on him because uh, <laughs> he's a huge atheist, he's a 14-year-old boy, That's and right. he's, a, he's a communist and, you know, yeah. and so on. And, um, but he's compared with Rupert Brooke, who's, whose book she is reading in the course of it, and um, our wonderful, I think, rather sort of big kind of critique of Rupert Brooke himself insofar as you can only read Rupert Brooke for a very short time which is really true and the, the <sighs> character of Christian is a, described as looking like Rupert Brooke and she gets over him very fast which is another heroic aspect of this well, magnificent character. She that um, Rupert Brooke makes her feel slightly sick. Yeah, yes. but she's brilliant. It's, the, it's such a good... And she opens... She has the book and opens it so she can look at his... At the picture. At the picture. <laughs> it's, just, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's a sort of... It's, yeah. you know, a pin-up, a kind of David Cassidy pin-up in during the, during the war, rationing. It's the best, the yeah. best account of the poverty and the I, cold... Of, and and the, the, the real day-to-day -day feeling of, 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 of what it was I, like living in, through the war I as well. Just, as we've talked about it, I just think this is such a wonderful book. As a perceptive boy of 48, <laughs> I just... I, I enjoyed this so much. So much. I think we're... Are we... I think, we're the, I think, I think we we're probably there. have to do the, so the sad thing. Never is, Andy. Never is. When yeah. you've got a good book. Yeah. Well, I, I think we have to say thanks to Laura... Uh, Laura Cumming and to Hilary Murray-Hill to our producer Matt Hall and once again thanks to our sponsors Unbound 
You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook at BacklistedPod as well, and on the Unbound site at unbound.com forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a, in a fortnight with another show. Have a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> Until then. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> Merry winter. <then>. <laughs> <laughs>